Welcome to Shift, a college admissions ACT and SAT podcast for a changing world. I'm Tyler, the founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable ACT course that includes everything you need to ace your ACT test. Full textbook, tons of questions backed by our memory enhancing algorithm, a built-in study planner, and full-length practice exams. You can get a free trial at Achievable.me, and if you like it, use the code podcast to get 10% off at checkout. Now, let's get started. Today, we have brought back Sasha Chada from Ivy Scholars. Um, if you haven't listened to his first episode on Shift with us about um, about internships, I'd highly recommend it. But we're here today to talk about another sort of up-and-coming uh, new trend in the admissions world, uh, which is high school students doing academic research projects. Um, and Sasha, before we get started, I'd love if you could just introduce yourself and your company for those who haven't heard you before. You got it. Tyler, thank you so much for having me. By way of introduction, my name is Sasha Chada. I'm the CEO of Ivy Scholars, a candidacy building company I've run for about the last decade. It's been our job to shepherd a couple thousand top tier students from freshman year all the way to acceptance to top tier universities. Yeah, fantastic. And so today, um, you know, I think this is particularly relevant for the top tier of students, like you mentioned, right? Um, but let's just first, like for broad strokes, for people who maybe aren't as familiar with them, go over like what a research project is and kind of who it's relevant for, like what kinds of students are looking to take to uh, do these projects. You got it. Research is similar to, to other academic projects, but involves a novel conclusion. So unlike the vast majority of other assignments students do in high school, where they're doing something where you can look up the answer in the back of a book, or you can calculate the answer yourself. The point of a research project is to add a tiny bit to the sum total of human knowledge, to learn something that's never been learned before, to explore a new topic. Research projects are also distinguished from standard academic projects because they're generally peer-reviewed. There's a jury of other students, uh, graduate students or professors, whose job it is to look at the research and judge if it's been done to a standard that they'd consider publishable within their venue. Mm -hmm. Right. So then at that point, I mean this is kind of the big leagues a little bit, right? Like, frankly, if you do, you know, a, let's say you're president of the robotics club or whatever, there isn't really anyone that's going to check in how well you did that job, right? Or how well uh, you did at your internship, you know, like you get a letter of recommendation maybe and you write about it. But at the end of the day, this is a lot more rigorous, I feel like. Well, that's correct. Often when students are publishing in peer-reviewed journals, their work's looked at by other scientists, sometimes the professors at the universities to which they're applying. Right. Yeah. And it's also because you're in this very specific field, um, it is a small universe, right? Depending on which field you're, you're publishing in. Levels of expertise are pretty high, but I don't want to scare students away from research. The fundamental mm -hmm. structure here you get data, you cite it, you analyze it, you interpret it, and then you draw conclusions, is the same as the vast majority of academic projects. It's just the standards are higher and students have to hold themselves to a higher standard to be accepted. Right. Yeah, so let's talk through what the pieces of a research project are. I think that um, they'll just be good to kind of outline it quickly, and then we can talk about, you know, all the different tips and tricks for doing this. But I think first, you know, Basically, um, I want to go through kind of like the different steps of the research project. Do you mind helping me do that? I'd be happy to. So in overview, 
Um, the point of research is to add to the sum total of human knowledge, unlike in high school where the point of an assignment is generally to just demonstrate your competence. To that end, where high schools are mostly teaching institutions, their job is to evaluate and educate students, universities are fundamentally research institutions. The professors do teach, but it's their main job to do this research. So when you're creating a research project, the best way to think about it is as a way to communicate with other people in your field, other scientists or literary critics or legal scholars, and a way to organize all of your thoughts so that they're able to follow your sources, your data, your conclusions, and ultimately build on the scholarship you've added to their field. So I'd like to break this down into eight pieces for Ivy Scholar students. Mm -hmm. The first is an abstract. Abstracts are the first thing everybody reads when it comes to research, and it's super important because people's attention spans are so short. In a generation of TikTok and YouTube shorts, I like to think of abstracts as the short-form content of academic research. Right. And while I think this leads a lot of students to underestimate them, I think it can be really fun. An abstract is your chance to prove your idea is going to stand muster. To summarize your paper really briefly, so people who want to look at it for 10 seconds can determine if the paper you're writing is relevant to what they want to study or if they need to look elsewhere. Right. Or even if they just want to read about it, right? There's a little bit of, I don't know if this is fair to say, but like a little bit of marketing to it. <laughs> you're not wrong. Um, a good abstract details your thesis and your data collection process and your conclusions, and it gives that top-line impact of what a reader can expect to learn about and take from the article you've written. Mm -hmm. Great. So we shoot for an abstract maximum, a couple hundred words. And I love the challenge of students identifying the most important aspects of their argument. I think it teaches them to prioritize how they're communicating with other scholars. And it's real good practice for the presentations they might eventually do. Right. Well, it's like that old saying is, um, it's easy to write a long essay, but hard to write a short essay. Like oftentimes you will learn a lot by just trying to distill down what you're trying to do into something short. Very true. Yeah, so, so yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Once you've distilled down, you've got an abstract. The abstract will give readers an idea of if they want to read through the rest of the paper. And then there's the next step. You're writing a thesis statement and an introduction. So much like high school papers, the point is to introduce the question you're asking and the argument you're making. And the biggest challenge I've seen here is making sure students know that they're not just info-dumping facts, but that they are explaining relationships between concepts, that they're giving a context for the phenomena they're exploring. I think especially for new scholars to a field, it can be tremendously challenging to identify what pieces of the field need to be explained in the intro and what would just be reinventing the wheel or adding extraneous detail. But my goal is that even non-experts, people who don't even have a bachelor's degree in the field, will understand the background of what students are researching after just the intro paragraph. Right. Yeah, and I think that's also, this is a very, um, a great, like, sort of context builder, right? If you're interested in a specific field, like, say, biology, um, having to figure out like you just said, what's actually important <laughs> and what's stuff that people already kind of know or you can assume that they know and you don't need to re-explain will probably just help you understand a lot about the field anyway. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, so then what's next after that? So next students have to do a literature review. The ideal is that students have a great research mentor 
maybe from a local university, maybe from a private institution like a for-profit company, or maybe from a college consulting or candidacy building organization like Ivy Scholars. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is you've got a guide, uh, Virgil T. or Dante, who can walk you through relevant authors in the space. And, and this is something I think a lot of students don't bother doing, even introduce yourself to them. One of the things I love to do in literature review, and I want to recommend it as strongly as possible to high school students, is not just to read people's articles. I think that's a wonderful start. Um, but scholarship isn't passive. I mean, it's not just a matter of looking at things in a library or on an online search engine and reading them. I think it's important students take notes and they start to build a framework for who has what opinions within the field and whose work they're going to be building on and where they agree and where they might depart or disagree or cover a piece of knowledge or context that wasn't covered by another scholar. And then I think the most magical part of literature review happens when students reach out to these scholars. Ivy Scholar students for the last year have been reaching out to professors across the nation and talking about the research that they've read that those professors have published. I think plenty of them have been nervous that they lack the expertise, or professors would feel like they're wasting their time, or just that they'd never get a call back. And that's happened sometimes, but a lot of the time, we have you know some amazing academics from Ivy League institutions that are tickled pink to take 10 minutes up to an hour out of their day to talk to a curious high school student who really loved devouring their work, sometimes the last couple articles they've written, and want to figure out how to build on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such a cool idea. I mean, even though, you know, at least at the undergraduate level, like these professors are probably not directly involved in admissions. Like, I'm sure there are sometimes, but it's, I think it's more rare than at the graduate school level. I also definitely think that it's a really cool way to like start to get to know people, right? Even if you don't go to their school, like you still might end up interacting with this person sometime in the future. And in the meantime, you know, you're getting real, like you're having real conversations with professors about like real things that they're working on. And I mean, that's pretty interesting by itself, right? Even if it doesn't necessarily do an admissions outcome, if you're really interested in the field, I think that's pretty cool. Um, the other thing I'd also say is, uh, I think that this is also the blessing of doing something that's somewhat hard and rare, right? Like students can't just skim a paper and then write like a little email and do that because it's a tactic to try and get in, right? Like you actually have to do your homework. Um, and I think doing it in a meaningful way is part of why it's like special and why those uh, professors are happy to write back. Yeah, I, I hope as, as many people as possible take this to heart when listening to your podcast, that what's special about students doing research is very rarely that these students enter as geniuses who are experts in the field. I think yeah. that's an unrealistic view. Students who have enthusiasm, who love reaching out to other people in the field, having read their articles, and having genuine, in-depth, passionate conversations tend to have way more success than students who just have, you know, higher test scores or something like that coming in. Uh, dedication and not raw intellect, I think, is by far the biggest factor in succeeding in one's research. So in addition to engaging with the, the scientific or literary or intellectual community that you're doing research in, the literature review is also a chance for students to get a sense of where their work might fit. Now, very often, students will start by reading top journals, something like Nature or Science in the Biosciences or Philosophical Review for Philosophy. 
And these are amazing, but it often takes top-tier professors years or even decades to finish publications there. So it's important we understand that students don't need to have three million scholars reading their work per month. Right. But what they should be looking for is some examples, um, role models from journals with an impact factor that's in the single digits. Maybe a couple hundred to a couple thousand people read them per year. But make sure that they understand that um, while they don't have to shoot for the stars and, and um, try to, to apply to the most competitive journals, they should be holding themselves to a standard of their peers. It's critical that they write something people want to read that's going to help other scientists or literary critics or legal scholars out there. And that they're not submitting a class assignment where they're trying to fill a rubric. They're talking to people in the intellectual community, learning from them, and then trying to write something that tells them what they genuinely want to know. I think it's a transition that people don't even necessarily make before they get out of college, right? But it's the transition kind of from doing school stuff to doing like real world stuff, right? I think that there's there's a pretty big difference between like what's going to get you a good grade on a paper versus what will actually be relevant to, you know, the field that you're in or the world, the world that you're trying to enter. Um, so I really like that. That's really cool. So when we're finalizing the literature review, the last question I like to ask students is, so what good is your research going to do? I think a lot of students are used to writing, for example, English papers about Romeo and Juliet without feeling like they're going to add to the body of scholarship on literature. They want to prove they understood something. But the eye-opener for so many of our students is that research isn't about proving you know something. It's about giving other people the proof they need to draw their conclusions, to test out their data. Um, I think it can be tremendously fun to engage with a community like this to help students see that universities aren't abstract bodies that want to evaluate them. They're groups of scholars just like them, but more advanced, and they'd value these students as, to join as members of their community. Right. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Well, so then um, what's next on, on the list here? So you've got your kind of, you've started to talk to people, you've reviewed other things in the field. What's the next step? So you've taken your notes. Now it's time to organize your data. Uh -huh. Sometimes this means you're going out and doing your own experiments. A lot of our psych students love doing psych experiments with students at their high school or local undergraduate bodies. It sounds like fun. Sometimes it is, it is. It's a blast. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you're gathering data from pre-existing data sets. So for example, the federal government has massive programs that gather tons of data on, um, on a slew of scientific topics from ecology and microbiology to forestry and physical chemistry to um, uh, social issues and social demographics. I think helping students understand that this data is already out there, that they don't need to reinvent the wheel, is really critical to helping students who are enthusiastic about a hard science, where it's often very challenging to get data, especially students who want to pursue something like pre-medical studies mm -hmm. or environmental studies on specific areas, where being able to get access to the patient or get access to the area is by no means a given. I mean, I think it's most the most sort of truth or the most true thing, the most sort of um, the thing that I think is very important to understand if you're going into this is pretty much all science is built on the backs of other science that's already happened. 
right? You do not need to start from scratch at all. And in fact, you shouldn't because that not only is a waste of time, but usually, you know, <laughs> you're just creating more opportunity for mistakes. You should be taking what's already out there and building on it. And, you know, government data sets are blessedly uh, still very good and very accurate, I think. And generally, knock on wood, uh, wildly avail widely available. I agree. And there's one more piece of this I think could be really fun. Once students have gathered data in preliminary, I like to facilitate when their, their home area allows them visiting, for example, the Getty Museum in Los Angeles for students interested in art or graduate level seminars at Rice University in Houston for a few of our students interested in academic topics. I like to send them to places where other academics are working with that data and have them share in preliminary their thoughts, what they've gathered, get some constructive criticism from people who aren't directly helping them with the paper, who aren't taking responsibility end to end, but fellow scholars who might hold them to task a little bit, who might make sure that they're setting a standard for themselves that's going to be what ultimately peer reviewers expect. Yeah, and also it's a great way to just kind of learn a little bit more about this field that you're interested in, right? Like getting to see what the final product looks like on the other side by like attending a lecture. Agreed. And I think for students, especially those who live in rural areas or overseas away from the U.S., it can be a great excuse to start getting closer to universities in the U.S., and turn what could just be a dry academic journey into something that's also a family vacation and a time a young person can start to understand what their future is going to look like at university. Yeah. So then um, once you've kind of got your data together, what do you, so at that point, do you basically write the paper? Like, it, is there anything else? Well, after you get the data together, you'll want to prepare visualization. And you'll want to keep checking the visualization, however you're expressing the data, against other experts in the field to make sure you're meeting their standards. But once you're ready with that, your next step is writing analysis and then conclusions. You're explaining what the data means. You're explaining the phenomena you're seeing within the data. And then you're outlining what conclusion a reader ought to draw from this and giving an idea of how that conclusion situates itself within the research. Yeah, and that's, I think this is arguably probably the part that you need the most help with. Is that a fair thing to say? Just because this is where the rubber really hits the road. Agreed. Uh, the best analysis and conclusions are like lively classroom discussions, fun debates. I think a lot of students um, can get caught up with the idea of making sure their, their data that they've so meticulously curated is represented, and they lose the passion for communication that a great analysis and conclusion section needs to have, where you're engaging with literature and, and with other scholars, and you're bringing people along on your intellectual journey. So I think this is the area that benefits the most by far from someone like a research mentor, like we have at Ivy Scholars, helping students analyze what they're saying, how they're saying it, and how they want the reader to take it. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So, like, what are some ways to prevent it from being too dry, right? Like, I mean, I'm just, this is an, a funny and uh, interesting concept to me. It totally makes sense. But having not written an academic paper, I, I'm curious, you know, what it is that you can do to kind of make it a little more lively. So, contrary to popular belief, these academic topics have a profound impact on everyday life, and they're a lot of fun to engage with. For example, our students who are doing psychological experiments like to ask questions about human motivation. 
and what that motivation says about why people will behave differently in different circumstances. Our students who are doing econometrics, who are doing financial analysis, love to look at different sectors, whether that's mining and resource extraction or technology, and help figure out what companies, what initiatives are at the forefront of leading the change they really want to, and which ones are full of hot air, which I think is a topic that's been on everyone's mind as of late. Yeah. Well, fascinating. So, yeah, even in the sciences, even in the sciences where things can seem drier, I think it can be really fun to explain um, why certain fauna have migrated to a specific location in the U.S., what factors uh, from environmental change and from human action have led animals to be in the place they are, behaving the way they are. I think if you treat research as a chance to share your exploration of the world with other scholars, you can evoke that kind of enthusiasm that shows up in peer review. Right. Well, and I think that at the end of the day, um, your enthusiasm is going to be important for like the future, right? Like again, sort of what we were talking about before, this isn't just a thing you're doing for your college application anymore, right? Like this is you actually starting to get involved in the field that you want to work in someday, right? So having, having excitement around that and having sort of a first, um, having sort of a first like a good foray into it where you're showing that at the, at a bare minimum, even if your conclusions maybe not rock solid, if you're, if you show your work and show your thought process, I think people will be pretty sort of engendered by the fact that you're a high school student doing this in the first place. Agreed. Um, I think the audacity, you know, just, just daring to say, I can figure something new out, can be tremendously appealing both for a young person, for their self-esteem and their identity, as well as for universities looking to recruit future leaders in the fields they'll be applying to. Great. Yeah, so then once you've got your conclusion wrapped up, um, what are sort of the other things that you just need to kind of put a bow on this? So there's two things you've got to do to put a bow on it. The first is a bibliography. And almost all students come to Ivy Scholars knowing what this is, a carefully crafted expression of exactly where one would go to find the data students used and the sources they drew from. I like helping students frame this as something else, where they're creating a list of a community of scholars, each of whose idea contributed to theirs. And one of the parts of the research process I find fun is that each of these sources themselves will have sources, and those people will have sources. And if you follow that thread far enough, you end up in the engineers of ancient Rome, or philosophers of classical Greece, or Egypt, or India, or China in 2000 BC. Um, the thread of scholarship has been pretty much unbroken for the last 6,000 years of human history, and students get to be just at the forefront of it, just at the tiny cap of the present day that's one six thousandth of, of the big picture. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's kind of fun to get uh, to be a part of it, right? Even in your own small way. Um, and then how do you uh, basically submit your work, right? Like, I mean, as I actually am quite curious about this. So, you know, you go through this whole process, but then how do you get someone to read it and care about it? And I mean, hopefully publish it, right? I'm not actually sure if, you know, getting published is realistic for these projects or, or not, or maybe it's that there's like different sort of tiers of publications. If you could just kind of walk me through all that, that would be, that'd be helpful. Sure, that's the case. So you'll want to make a list of venues. You'll want venues in which a couple hundred to a couple thousand people are reading it. So I like to make sure students aren't submitting to journals where I feel the competition's too stiff. 
but I also want to make sure they're not submitting to journals where zero to ten people are going to read their work. I feel that if you're doing research, it ought to be real, and even if it's for a relatively small community, it needs to be for someone, not just for you, but to add. Once we create a list of venues, I like to sort them by impact factor, which is a measure of how many people read a paper or a journal in a given year. Mm -hmm. Students are generally in the single digits here. We also have a few details to take care of. We may be required to do MLA, APA, or Chicago-style citations, and publications are much more sensitive than, say, high school English teachers to making sure students have dotted their I's and crossed their T's and proper citations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's also important to look at submission requirements, page length, graphics, everything that a paper is expected to be. Now, ideally, at this point, students have already read 5 to 12 papers from the journals they're submitting to. So there's no question here. They're very familiar with the idea, uh, the structure, the format of these papers. They're just trying to replicate that and add their own unique twist. Order of authorship is also a big deal. Some students will be first authors and should be because the work was primarily theirs. Other students, um, you'll need to handle the institution they're publishing from in a way that's concrete. Maybe their high school can support them. Maybe they can affiliate themselves with a local university or community college, or maybe their research mentor has an affiliation through which they can borrow that they can use on behalf. Interesting. Yeah, that's something I've never even realized that you had to think about. So basically, order of authorship means that the whoever, if you like write the paper completely on your own, you could basically put your name on it. But most of the time you want to kind of say, I'm submitting as a part of some other group. Well, for students who are doing solo work, for example, our students in philosophy who have one or two mentors they're speaking with, but the ideas are mostly their own original intellectual work, they're often sole authors. In contrast, our pre-med students who are working in wet labs at Baylor or MD Anderson, it's really important they make sure to list the other contributors, who's their PI, the principal investigator, who else helped them within the lab. Clearly, they didn't do all of this alone, so it's important to show that they have a team and to explain how the team functioned to produce the research that's being submitted. Right. Yeah, you don't <laughs> you don't have your own wet lab. That's definitely true. We've had one student whose um whose father was the CEO of a uh, multinational chemical company who actually did have her own wet lab, and that was very fun because it broke my rule of students can't be the first author on a wet lab publication. In that specific case, we made an exception. That's funny. Uh great. Yeah, so then let's talk about like, so the, I felt like that was a good overview of sort of what research projects are and like how to go through them. And now I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about sort of like why people are doing these more in high school and kind of going into college admissions and, and sort of who is it for, right? I feel like um, that would be really helpful context for people. And then kind of we can dig into the de uh, a couple of tips and tricks after that. Even in the last nine months since we last talked, admissions has gotten about 5 to 8% more competitive across the board. For Ivy scholars and other companies like us, that's concentrated with top-tier institutions, generally the top 50 universities in the U.S. All of these are research universities. It's their job to do research and add to the sum total of human knowledge. And all of them care that students are passionate about that mission and that students, even if they end up in a career that doesn't intersect with academia, have the academic skill sets necessary to identify a topic, read through the literature, build an understanding of what exactly it is they're trying to seek out, 
get data, analyze it, conclude, and then be able to share this work with whatever peers or community that's important to them. So research has always been critical. And in an increasingly competitive college admissions environment, it's one of the best ways students can demonstrate intellectual vitality. They've got the drive to not just do well in a structured classroom environment, but to start their own project, hold it to the, to the scientific standards that real academic communities expect, and see it through to fruition. Right. Well, like we talked about earlier, I think there's a ton of really good skills and things that you learn in doing all of this. Um, and I, I also think that, I mean, it's kind of like what I mentioned earlier. There, the other thing with college admissions, not only is it just getting more competitive, but like so many of the things are becoming kind of table stakes, right? Like I saw a chart the other day um, in like the Test Prep Tribe Facebook group. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Uh, where the average GPA for Harvard admit, admittees has steadily risen to now it's like a 3.8 or something, right? Uh, I've seen stats like 40 or 50% of America has a 4.0 GPA or better, which is crazy. Um, and then, of course, because of that, everybody got into extracurriculars. And then because of that, everybody got into internships, which is what we talked about last time, right? So it feels like if you want to do something that really stands out and isn't super crowded, you've got to be also thinking about kind of like, what's the next step, right? Like, I think that's maybe part of the reason why this is something that people are looking at to stand out. Tyler, I see where you're coming from. You're right. Admissions gets more competitive and students are looking for ways they can demonstrate their candidacy for universities. But simultaneously, the research process is new. Arguably, it's as old as Francis Bacon, or maybe even Aristotle, depending on exactly how you want to define it, but a couple centuries to a couple millennia for sure. Yeah. I think students are, are seeing that standards at universities are rising, and they know they've got to develop themselves accordingly, that if they want to gain entrance to a top-tier institution and get a top-tier education, they've got to prove they're worthy of it. But I think there's still a massive contingent of students who are aping the form, but not the substance of all of these activities that build candidacy, whether it's an internship or a research project or extracurriculars. Every year, I, I see plenty of students who have empty titles, who are president or founder of a club, but haven't done a whole lot. Right. Or who look to do research, but they're submitting to venues that aren't peer-reviewed, where it's a pay-to-play arrangement where students pay a submission fee and then they get a preprint or right. a write-up in some organization that scientists don't read, that they don't trust, that they're not interested in. I think the critical thing, and the thing that's where standards are getting higher, is that students have to do a better job with their extracurriculars, with their internships, with their research. And that's what it's my company's mission to facilitate. Right. Well, yeah, and it's, it's also like you sort of touched on, um, there's a lot of people doing a lot of performative stuff that's just sort of to put it on the resume and not really because they're super passionate about it or interested in it. And I don't think you can do a performative research paper. I feel, or if you did, you know, you'd be submitted to one of those pay to play journals and it wouldn't really be taken seriously. Um, so going through this legitimate process, I think is kind of a good uh, filter and shows real genuine interest. Agreed. And I don't think most students want to do that kind of perfunctory, cursory research work. I do think a lot of them 
will lean into that when they feel intimidated because the scope of research can be massive and it can be a very exacting project. I think that's why it's critically important anytime someone's working with a high school student on research, you've got to find a question they're curious to answer in a field they're passionate about, introduce them to other researchers' work and eventually to other researchers, and make sure that you're providing, in addition to just intellectual guidance, a bit of a role model that researchers helping students learn about an intellectual topic can also help them develop the intellectual and academic skills they use in the rest of their education and the rest of their life to better understand the world they live in and, and perform better. Yeah, and also, like we talked about, to get into that world, to start to actually build, like, build a little bit of a career there. And I mean, that's probably a good segue into what I want to ask about next. This is like, who is this for, right? Like, if if you are, uh, if you are listening, or if you're a parent listening on behalf of your child, right? Like, where what are the things that should make you go, aha? Maybe I should consider this. The first is intellectual curiosity. And the second is ambition. Students who are both curious and ambitious enough to act on that curiosity and try not just to learn something for themselves, but to show what they've learned to the rest of the scientific community, to the rest of the world, are perfect fits for a research project. This is especially true for students who want to go into a major that's, that's fairly specialized. For example, some of our aerospace engineering students have worked with Boeing or Rayathon or some of their subcontractors to do research into heat dissipation and aerodynamics. And I think it's pretty difficult to explore these topics in a practical sense as a high school student. There's just not a lot of opportunities to, um, to make your own aircraft when you're in high school. But there are research institutions that are willing to take on high school students who want to help learn about mm. this topic and add to America's knowledge for our own defense and for our own commercial applications. Right. Yeah. And, and I think there's probably an aspect, too, like you touched on at the beginning um, of professors just being or even people working just being excited about the fact that some high school kids are wanting to dig in on this, right? It's something that they're passionate right, about. So I've heard, so um, one of the challenges we faced at Ivy Scholars getting started with research is so many of these articles are gated behind a publication portal. Um, and students end up paying 30 or $60 to read an article, which I think is just silly. It's not a fair value proposition. Mm -hmm. So at first, we started reaching out to different professors who'd written these articles to say, hey, would you mind sending me a PDF copy? I'd love to read your work, but I don't have a JSTOR subscription. And I found that you know, this casual request for, that um, would do nothing for the professor that was just a student demonstrating their passion and interest did so much to earn us credibility and enthusiasm in the academic communities we were reaching out to. So to that end, um, when you talk about students wanting to break in, wanting to build a relationship. I think students don't need to have a calculated presentation, a face they built up for when they're approaching researchers. I think simple, curious enthusiasm is enough. Hey, I read one of your articles, I saw another, but would you mind sending me a version because I don't have access? And by the way, I've read your article, I, um, I'm calling you back a couple weeks later, maybe we can find 10 minutes to talk on the phone about some of your conclusions. Right. And showing up prepared to that call. <laughs> showing up prepared at every step really um yeah i mean i think this is actually a, another good segue point to just talk about how to build these relationships right because i think that is one of the things that you can get out of this kind of guaranteed is a strong word but it's like you'll have an opportunity to build relationships by doing this regardless of which school you go to or you know whether or not your paper is super successful 
Um, so I would love to hear, you know, just your thoughts on like get establishing these relationships in your hopeful field of choice. I think the best way to do this is to have a central research mentor, someone who ideally is, has a PhD in this field and is really familiar with the scholarship. They finished their own dissertation. They know how to navigate various trends and major theories within a field and then help them identify the relevant parts of the field the student's studying, and then break down the major players. Very often this is pretty easy, because if you go to your bibliography and trace back a couple steps in each citation, you'll find that often some theories link to the same four to seven thinkers. Sometimes it's best for students to reach out to these people directly, but oftentimes, for example, we have a student really interested in Noam Chomsky's work, it can be really difficult to get them on the phone because they're so deluged with requests from other students. So I like to help students reach out to scholars of those scholars, other professors who are around a, a central academic luminary, and then start up discussions with them. I've also really enjoyed helping students join graduate school clubs or unofficial meetings or committees for philosophy, for political science, um, and for art and design, so that they get exposure to, to what it looks like when passionate, older, more experienced students are working on research, and they get uh, a realistic peer community that's beyond what you would get in high school, but fundamentally is in the same place with the same goals, just with more advanced skill sets. Right. I think integration into the community is the center of all of this. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, I also, I agree with you that I think that the graduate student groups are a really good bridge because I feel like if you're a high school student dealing with professors can be pretty intimidating, right? Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, full on adults, they're out in the world. They usually have already had some accomplishments versus, um, graduate school students are in a somewhat similar, but <clears throat> they're trying to kind of do the same thing that you're doing <laughs> to an extent. I think that's true, with the counterpoint that professors, too, put their pants on one leg at a time yeah, yeah. and make mistakes. In fact, we, uh, we had a student um, who was working with a professor at the Johns Hopkins University, my alma mater, who found like an elementary arithmetic calculation and was really scared to point it out, but she did. And her professor was pleased as punch to have a student so attentive to detail that she was actually catching him you know, transposing a one. Um, I thought it was adorable and, and was really indicative of the fact that good academics, good professors, don't care how old you are and they don't care what you've published and they're not looking to um, test your worthiness in an abstract sense. They want to do the work. And if you're passionate about joining them and show up prepared and you're doing your best to make a contribution, they'll love having you along for the ride. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um well, then let's talk a little bit about, I think some of the things I want to touch on here uh, was first just like, you know, what are the common pitfalls that you should be watching out for um, when you're doing these things and making sure that you avoid? And then what are some ways, I mean, when we were doing the prep, you said, you know, that you have some tips and best practices for taking away a lot of the heartbreak of starting one of these projects yourself. And I'm really curious first, kind of like what the heartbreak could be, right? <laughs> and and sort of what are the things that people need to watch out for when they're going into these things? And then how you can avoid that. The biggest heartbreak for students is when they realize they're asking the wrong question. 
But this is also an inevitable part of students' growth as an intellectual and a researcher. So it's our job at Ivy Scholars to help students zero in on the zone and the question they want to address. But as we start gathering data, we'll often see maybe this is headed straight for the Journal of Disconfirmed Results. And it looks like our initial hypothesis is relatively trivial. Or maybe the data is not available or is going to be really difficult to gather or there's legal, ethical, organizational, logistical complications in gathering the data to answer the original question. And we need to pivot. We need to frame our idea differently. The intellectual flexibility of understanding your subject area well enough that when you realize your first method of framing your question isn't going to work, that you can move on to a second and a third and even a fourth, I think is the most important thing for students seeking to embark on a research project. The point of research is to learn. So if everything goes exactly as you expected, you're probably not getting as much out of this as you could. I like to teach students that when they're redefining their question, when they're retargeting their goal, this isn't a sign of failure or compromise or that they didn't do things right in the first place. This is the learning process that even the best of professors do in research. And it's something they should be grateful for. Right. I mean, these, I think learning is supposed to be an exploration, right? You're, you should be sort of pivoting along the way based on what you've learned and, and get. But I could totally under, understand how students might say, I want to prove that the sky is, is blue or whatever. And then they find out kind of through their workings that it's really more of an aquamarine. And they're like, but I didn't do it. I didn't prove it. Right. I, I could see that trap and falling into that trap. A successful scientist asks questions and gets answers, but maybe not always the answers to the questions they were asking. Right. Or the, or the answers that they hoped for, which is kind of the point. <laughs> it, it, you, should be, you should be happy with the answers and kind of intrigued by them regardless of whether they were what you expected or not. A lot of this makes its way into our students' college essays. They'll talk about their intellectual growth and how having their assumptions challenged or even disconfirmed might have been disconcerting at first, but ultimately it made them a better intellectual and more prepared for a university experience where they're going to be confronted with lots of things that are unfamiliar or surprising or different than they expected. And that's a challenge they now know how to handle and keep rolling. Yeah. And then let's talk a little bit about um, just any other kind of like advice, tips, like, you know, pitfalls to avoid or like things that you should do, uh, just sort of more general advice on this topic. Organizations critical in research. In the first stage, in the first three to seven hours, Ivy Scholars works with students to make a preliminary plan with dates and benchmarks for when we're going to finish the abstract, the introduction, the lit review, the data, the analysis, the conclusions, the bibliography. Then we chart out all the venues we'll be submitting to. We note down all their requirements in terms of citation, in terms of authorship, in terms of gathering the data, in terms of formatting. And then we list all their deadlines for submission, as well as if they allow simultaneous submission, if you can send the same paper, the same presentation to multiple venues, or if you can only send it to one at once. After we build this plan, we go back and revise it after we finish the lit review because so often we know we need to update our plans because we've learned new things or circumstances have changed. I think planning and keeping those plans flexible is really key to student successes because when you're embarking on a big research project, something that might take 60 instructional hours and 300 hours of homework on the student's part, that's basically a whole nother class in high school. 
classes have syllabi, they've got a teacher leading them. If you're doing all this solo, the obligation's on you to be way more organized than your peers would be. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's where having a mentor could be really important or having, you know, your parents help or just, I think that the organization piece of it is quite challenging, right? The organization piece and, and kind of the, um, and kind of just like the, the guidance on doing academic papers at all. I think that's probably the two areas where mentorship helps the most. I, I agree. Students who, who don't have this mentorship, I think still have tons of resources they can learn from. IvyScholars.com is some wonderful examples of not just students who finished their research projects, but what research projects look like in progress, different data sets that are useful, different analytic techniques students can use to analyze those sets to draw conclusions. I think there are a lot of pieces out there that diligent students can use to assemble an understanding, but I agree, nothing beats a mentor who wants to understand you, who knows the field and wants to get to know you and then help the two of you grow together. Right. Yeah, you'll probably learn a lot more from that mentorship relationship even than <laughs> then even the or you could learn as much from that as the process itself, which should be very helpful. This is why I tell people great research isn't plug and play. You don't just find someone to work with, maybe a grad student who's already got expertise in the topic. You look for a mentor you personally admire, who has character traits you like, who has an intellectual bent that's similar to what you want to follow, who has accomplishments that can serve as a role model for your goals in your personal and professional life. I really believe Candidacy building mentors and research mentors to Ivy scholars need to be amazing people that students love working with. And I think to the extent students can be picky, even though it's very scary at first, it can be great to interview two or four or even six different professors who you might do research with to find the one where you have the best fit, the best click. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on, on sort of how to find those people? Like just in, in general, like kind of how to like build your list of people to reach out to and, and start that process. So start by looking at the topic you want to research and looking at the bibliography there. Look for authors who are still active. Every university page will have a faculty page on their website that'll let you see who's there and what they've published. And Google Scholar will often collate by name a list of all the publications someone's been involved with. So when you start finding articles you're interested in, you can find the scholars you're interested in. You can look at their history of what they've published. You can often also find the kind of work they do with students, sometimes the classes they teach at university. And from here, our students very often will either cold email or cold call, or they'll fly out to the university and ask to set up a visit. And the personal touch, showing that you've done your homework on the professor, you know what it is they're writing about, and you've done your best to understand it solo, and you've come with some meaningful questions that are a good use of their time earn students a lot of credence and respect in these conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also important, like you said, to just maintain a really high level of like professionalism and preparedness throughout. Like if you get this professor's time and you kind of show up and are like, Hey, I just wanted to like have coffee and, and like hang out. Like they're going to be like, okay, it won't be the same level of credibility as if you showed up prepared with questions about the topic at hand. So what we do to help our students prepare is we'll go through the literature review and they'll read at least three pieces from a professor's recent publications. They'll come up with questions that they write down and then we'll work together to answer and explore them so that they can come in and say, I have some prior knowledge, here's my current understanding and here specifically is what I want your thoughts on. 
And then I like to do a practice interview where they're practicing asking their questions, listening to potential answers, getting the wiggles out of nerves and anxiety so they're comfortable in a conversation. So that by the time they're speaking with a real professor, it feels like something they've done before. It doesn't feel too novel or intimidating. Right. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I think then just anything else that you wanted to cover on these academic research topics today before we wrap up. No, Tyler, I think you've done a really fantastic job um, walking through a lot of the details that high school students and their parents need to know about research, and I hope this helps your listeners advance their educations. Yeah, no, thank you for walking us, all of us, including me, <laughs> through this topic that is, you know, pretty involved. I mean, I think that it's it's definitely, I hope that with a lot of things in college admissions, I hope this is one of those things that moves things in the right direction where people are really focusing on diving deep into what they actually want to do in their career and in their life and, and having that be sort of the cornerstone of their admissions process rather than being the president and founder of six clubs that don't do anything. Agreed. Doing something is definitely uh, the way to go. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been Shift, a college admissions podcast for a changing world, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Sasha Chata from Ivy Scholars. And you can get a free trial of Achievable's ACT course by going to achievable.me and be sure to use the code podcast if you like it to get 10% off.